Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Let's start with a prayer now. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, please be with us this evening that we may hear your call in our lives and we may see the guidance you give each of us as we deal and navigate with all the difficulties of this world and lead us, please, to eternal life together in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just, um, I just got in from Chicago about two hours or so ago and probably like most of you, I use Uber and Lyft to get from place to place, and sometimes when there's a, a driver who seems like he wants to tell you a story, um, it's, worth, it's worth asking. So in Chicago, apparently, this Uber and Lyft driver got a, got a call toward a ride, and he's driving toward the place, and um, traffic is picking up, and he's seeing sirens ahead of him. And it looks as though, it looks as though there's an accident just not far ahead. And he's worried that he can't get through the accident, accident to where he's been called to, where he's been called to arrive. So as he's approaching, a guy comes up and he's sort of limping toward him. And um, he can see that he's not far from the accident at this point. There's sirens and police up there. And the guy limps up and he holds up his, holds up his phone to indicate that he's the person to call for the ride, that I'm sure that most of us have done. Guy gets in the back of the Uber and um, says, are you, you know, so-and-so picks up, he says, yeah. And um, he says, what, um, what happened up above there? He said, oh, I was on a bicycle. I just got hit. Um, the drop-off is the hospital. And the guy thought to himself, things are really getting bad in Chicago when people get in accidents and call Uber to take them to the hospital instead of an ambulance. This though, and there is a reason why I bring up ride sharing. This though is probably my favorite. Sky also told me about this ride. This is my favorite Uber drive ever. Actually got a call from, must have been a good night. Actually got a call from someone who did not realize that he was just around the corner from his house on one-way street. That was a, probably one of the last $4.28 Uber, Uber rides you'll probably ever see. Just that, just that far. All right. Reason why I bring this up is I want you to imagine being a Uber or Lyft driver for a moment. And you get a call toward a spot. And the person above you is in a wheelchair and a double amputee. Think for a moment, Lieutenant Dan. What's that movie? There's a guy, Lieutenant Dan, in Forrest Gump. Think for a moment, Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan. Gets in the car, and maybe the destination, maybe the destination that he wants to arrive at is, well, a place of ill repute, a noted house of prostitution. That maybe even, maybe even houses victims of human trafficking. If you fulfill this request, if you fulfill this request in this ride, are you morally responsible for what follows upon his arrival? Now consider a couple scenarios. What if you're genuinely, genuinely unaware of the activities that take place at the address? In other words, you know nothing about what goes on at this address. Well, it's hard to be held responsible. In that kind of a scenario, it is very hard to be held responsible. You cooperated, in that sense, in providing him with transportation. But you were ignorant of his goal. But that's probably the easiest scenario. What if you had suspicions, just on the location of the neighborhood, about what sort of activities took place in that house? Does that change anything? How certain do you have to be of the exploitative activities? What if you're pretty certain 
and upon arrival, the man asks you for help from the car. All right, now if it's a double AFUT, it's only natural that you're going to have to help your ride from the car and get him situated in his wheelchair. Now what if he asks you to assist him into the house? Now maybe there's a slight elevation that's difficult to navigate and he just needs a little bit of help to get up two or three inches. Are you now morally responsible for the activities that follow shortly after his arrival? What, do you, what if he offers you a generous tip? What if he pays you quite well on top of all that and then asks you to wait for him, asks for you to wait for him to take him home, all right? You know after these rides, you can adjust a little bit of a tip to it. Does that change anything? In other words, how close do you have to be to the exploitative acts for you to be for moral responsibility, for moral responsibility to attach. All right, so what we're discussing here is moral cooperation, all right? Illicit moral cooperation occurs when someone knowingly facilitates the immoral actions of another. Now, cooperation is an activity that is clearly, clearly distinguishable from the immoral action itself. It's not merged into an evil act but it is a collaborative component. It's a collaborative component in the action itself. It would be something like, it would be something like selling a handgun legally to someone that you had a pretty good idea was going to take it and use it to commit murder. Now you had nothing to do with the murder itself. You might not know the victim, you didn't identify the victim, you have no idea how they're going to do it, it wasn't even your idea, and you're certainly not going to pull the trigger. So it's not the same action as murder. And maybe you, the seller, are not really interested in what the person does with the gun anyway. You just want to make a buck in a fashion that, by the way, is legal, assuming it's a licensed sale. And after all, maybe the killer would have purchased the gun elsewhere anyway. The whole thing would have happened, whether you were a part of it to begin with. Nonetheless, in that kind of a scenario, if you know, if you know what somebody's going to do with the weapon, well, it would be hard, it would be hard to avoid some responsibility. You're part of a causative chain that links to the action that follows. Now, my guess is that you're probably not, no one in this room is probably going to be asked to shuffle a disabled person to a brothel or sell a weapon is someone that would be a killer. But you probably will, and probably already have, and maybe even conditionally required to facilitate and thereby cooperate in immoral activities to various degrees. Indeed, it would be difficult to avoid. I know I haven't avoided them. All right, consider many, probably all of you are Catholics. All right, to work for Major League Baseball is an incredibly competitive job. I had an advisee this year. I had an advisee this year in our management department who managed to break it into Major League Baseball, headquartered here in, in New York. Right now, Major League Baseball, it strikes me from what I know about his experience, is something like working in the U.S. Capitol. A lot of people want to break in. A lot of qualified people compete hard for that lowest level of staffing job just to get a chance to build up a career in that field. And those jobs don't pay very well because they don't have to be. They're very competitive. Now imagine as a Catholic getting a job in Major League Baseball and at a time like this, and maybe you're involved in marketing and you're forced to put out some material that's designed to promote tonight's game at Dodger Stadium. All right, promoting the Sisters of, what is it? Sisters of Perpetual, Perpetual Indulgence. Yeah. Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Now you don't have anything to do with this. You're just happy to get into Major League Baseball. All right, now this group might do some charitable works. I don't know that, but it seems to me that much of the entire core of its establishment is designed to mock, it seems to me, all right, mock women's religious life. At least that's part of the idea here. What do you do? 
You didn't design the ads. You certainly didn't come up with the idea. You're not all that supportive of the idea, but you finally got a chance into a very hard career that's hard to crack and one that you intend to pursue. And you're asked to post this through its various media channels. Do you have to quit your job? What do you do in a situation like this? Or what about, what about people who stock shelves at stores like Target? All right, so this was a recent, this was a little bit of a recent controversy. All right, store clerks who stock the children's section at Target. Here are a couple of examples of items that have been found recently at Target stores. All right, now the people who stock inventory likely don't create these materials. All right, the people who stock inventory likely do not create these materials. Do they cooperate? Are they cooperating in normalizing gender transitioning and advocacy among children, immorally, in stocking slogan items as part of their job? Now, these are maybe unusual cases. These are maybe unusual cases. But all of us are probably holding, or probably, probably all of us own something that, run, that, that has within its container, or has within its instruments, cobalt. All right, now, cobalt is essential in rechargeable batteries. There's a professor at Harvard, Carr, who's done some work that shows that there is no such thing as a clean supply chain for cobalt. Most of the cobalt comes from the, comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and much of that cobalt is coming from what are called so-called artisanal miners. Right? So mining companies like Glencore don't want to get involved in this because there's too much publicity risk. What they'd rather do is have small farmers, have small miners, many of whom employ child labor, Right, produce the cobalt for them, and then they'll buy it after they extract it. It's one way to just get some separation from a whole host of other problems as they've dealt with historically. Now, if there's no such thing, if there's no such thing as a clean supply chain for cobalt, well then, our investment bankers that raise capital for companies like Tesla Right, that needs tons of cobalt. Tesla needs tons of cobalt to operate. Are they somehow participating in the evil of child and slave labor? Right, or what about, and I actually know somebody in this case, what about somebody who's a development director for a children's hospital? Right, somebody who raises money for a children's hospital. Very altruistic position. Right? Now the hospital, the children's hospital, is going to treat all sorts of conditions. But one of the new lines, and this, this site here is from the Children's Hospital in Akron that does a fair bit of work in promoting its child transitioning uh, procedures, and a recent one for them. But what about a, a, de a development director who's asked to help raise money for child transitioning? Are they participating in something like child self-harm? or pharmaceuticals, probably one that's a little more closer to most of us, right? Drug companies produce cancer treatments, but also abortifacients and opioids that we know at least in some cases were intentionally marketed, at least in some cases, were intentionally marketed in ways that disregarded their risks, creating a whole new generation of addicts and opening up the market for fentanyl. Who's responsible for those decisions and to what degree? Is the pharmaceutical sales force that visited the doctors, the marketing firms that created the campaigns? We're one of the few countries that allow direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising. Right? The investment bankers who raised the capital and the lawyers who secured the distribution of the licenses, to what degree do they share responsibility? Or think about chemical companies. You've probably seen this image before. This young woman is actually still alive and in the United States, right? Famous, famous photograph from the Vietnam War. During the Vietnam War, Dow Chemical developed and sold napalm, 
to the Department of Defense. They had one buyer. It was the Department of Defense. It had one use. All right. Are the executives, the scientists, the lawyers, and the factory workers in Michigan, which is where it was made, are they responsible for burning children in villages in Vietnam? Or are just some of them? And if so, which ones? Now, oil and water don't mix. You all know that oil and water don't mix, but in this world, black and white do. And there is a, something like a haze of gray that is settled on the world, and probably, probably on your workplace as well. Last week, last week we had the smoke from the wildfires. And these pictures, of course, you've seen them went around the globe, the Manhattan skyline some point last week, you could not help but breathe the air. Now there is something like a moral parallel living in an environment like this. There's something like a moral parallel to this. I don't know that we can help. I honestly don't know that we can help but breathe in the gray. But we do need to find a way. We need to find a way to keep from inhaling it and allowing it to color our soul. Right now, June, June and really all summer long is a season for weddings. Now, weddings have associated with them these kind of corny dance routines, right? The Macarena, the Macarena is certainly among them. The Limbo is another. You probably all know what this is, right? And maybe some, if not all of you, have tried it. Now, I've titled this discussion I've titled this discussion, Moral Limbo in the Workplace. At least in my own case, at least in my own case, I have felt that I've had to manage, struggle at times, to see how low I could go without hitting the bar that marks the boundary between good and evil. All right? That's the point of this title. Now, even Jesus, it's worth mentioning, that even Jesus, I think, during his life, played something of a game of moral limbo. Consider the Roman tribute. Right? Jesus paid the tax to the Romans and counseled others to do the same. Was this some sort of moral cooperation in the exploitation of the Roman Empire? Was it, or was it more of a pragmatic sidestep designed to avoid a premature confrontation with imperial authorities? Or was it a contribution to the great Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome? Civil society made great advances during the era of the empire. Christianity, Christianity could hardly have spread so quickly without something like the Peace of Rome. Or maybe a better example is this from John the Baptist. Consider John the Baptist when centurions and tax collectors came to him and were asking for, well, spiritual direction. Right? That's what they were asking for. The centurions and the tax collectors came to John the Baptist for some version of spiritual, spiritual direction. And what does he tell them? John the Baptist told them that they personally should do no evil neither collecting more taxes than they're due, nor oppressing anybody, or extorting money out of them. But he did not counsel any of them, as far as we know, to withdraw from the world, or even to quit their jobs. And these were tax collectors and Roman soldiers. What I want to outline is something like a framework and maybe provide some direction for navigating moral cooperation. And it's a complicated question, and obviously I can only outline it here this evening. But first, let me make a couple of qualifications. It's never good to counsel evil, all right? So none of this, none of this should be understood as a lesson to how to negotiate with evil circumstances so that you can continue pursuing purely personal, purely ephemeral goals, right? Likewise, likewise, neither do I aim to give you justifications to seek 
and to live your life in a jungle of moral compromise. If you are close, if you are close professionally to matters that trouble your conscience, well, my goal is not to set your mind at ease. It's not what I want to do in the next 10 minutes here. Rather than demonstrate how to go below the limbo stick, I would much prefer to counsel you to go around it altogether. But that is not always possible. That is not always possible. Think of what follows is something like a strategy of sorts toward how to play the game without losing and without quitting either. I want to start with Aquinas. Here's a picture of Aquinas from Providence College where I teach. Aquinas is credited for recognizing and illustrating what has become known as the principle of double effect. Now, the principle of double effect is used to determine when an action which has two effects, one good and one evil, may still be chosen without sin. And some of you are probably familiar with Thomas's great work, the Summa Theologiae, when the second part of the second part it's all divided into questions. In question 64, St. Thomas takes up the question of killing in self-defense. Right, now you're trying to do two things here. One is you want to save your own life. But in order to do that, there's no way to do that but kill another. All right. So Thomas writes that nothing hinders one from one act from having two effects. In fact, we know that there are often more than two, multiple effects usually only one of which is intended. I just want to pursue my career and do it well. The other, which is beside the intention. Now, moral acts take their species according to what is intended and not according to what is beside the intention. Okay, so what Thomas is basically saying here is that actions are complicated, this side of paradise, and sometimes bad things happen that you don't intend. But there's no other way to accomplish the good. And the dividing line he marks here is intention. What are these things are you trying to do? If you're trying to save your life, which is good, well, the death of another is what St. Thomas would call accidental. Right? But intention doesn't solely govern the actions. Even in this question, Thomas is, close to, is careful to qualify himself. Some actions proceeding from good intention may still be rendered unlawful, if they're out of proportion to the end. Wherefore, if a man in self-defense uses more than necessarily violence, it will be unlawful. This will be important. We'll return to this in a moment. All right, so St. Thomas recognizes, St. Thomas recognizes that some of our actions cannot help but have multiple immediate, and here we're only talking about immediate, multiple immediate effects so long as the intention is fixed on a good end and the course of action is proportionate to that good end, well, then the act is justifiable. Now, St. Thomas here speaks to an extreme case, self-defense, but surely, later figures thought, the principle must apply elsewhere. From this basic identification of multiple effects, grew the distinction we have today between what is called formal and material cooperation in evil. Now, cooperation was not an issue, the question St. Thomas answers, right? But his response guides the analysis, and we'll see how. The figure credited, the figure credited with supplying the basic treatment of moral cooperation that the church has adopted is St. Alphonsus Liguori. Now, St. Alphonsus draws a distinction between formal and material cooperation. This is really the first step, and it's purely intention here that St. Thomas refers to. It's purely intention here that marks the distinction. The former, formal cooperation, is always immoral. The latter, material cooperation, may be immoral but it also sometimes maybe not. Let's take a look at what St. Alphonsus writes 
in his own theological treatise, that cooperation is formal which concurs in the bad will of another. This means you want that bad outcome. Right? You actually want that to happen. And it cannot be without sin. Now think earlier I talked about selling the handgun to the person. You have a pretty good idea is going to use it for murder. Now you don't know how. You didn't pick the victim. You don't particularly care. But if you know... Well, that can't help but be formal. You're selling them with the intention that they're going to use it in a certain way. That cooperation is material which occurs only in the bad action of the other apart from the cooperator's intention. In other words, it's not what you really want to happen. Okay, so to return to my Uber or Lyft driver, if you eagerly take delight in helping the man engage in prostitution, if you're happy to be a part of that, and suffer no, no moral qualms about it whatsoever. Your intention has shaped or formed. That's why we use the word formal. It's been shaped. Shaped your activity such that, while it might be generic in itself, being an Uber or Lyft driver, it cannot help but be immoral. Right? You're no longer transporting a customer. You're willingly aiding prostitution. Now that act might look indistinguishable from material cooperation. From the outside, they're going to look the same. Material cooperation itself might also be immoral, but St. Alphonsus suggests that there are circumstances under which it may be justifiable. Intention is a threshold factor, but it's not a determinative one. Intention is a threshold factor, but not the one that's determinative. And what I mean by that is that while intention marks the difference between formal and material cooperation, having an acceptable intention itself is not sufficient to sanitize an activity. St. Alphonsus writes the following. But the latter, material cooperation, is licit when the action is good or indifferent in itself, and when one has reason for doing it that is both justified and proportioned. That's St. Thomas's proportionate language earlier, to the gravity of the other sin, and to the closeness of the assistant, assistance which is thereby given to carrying out of that sin. All right, so let's maybe try to break this down just a bit here. When we get our first, well, we get our framework. For when moral cooperation, when moral cooperation may be licit. And I think anyone, anyone working in any profession today faces some shade of these decisions. All right, so St. Alphonsus suggests the following. The secondary agent, that's the cooperator. That's the person who doesn't think this is a good idea and would rather prefer not be in this situation at all. All right, maybe the Catholic sitting in the Dodgers office today, sending out social media information on honoring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence this evening, as we speak, four hours from now. All right. St. Alphonsus suggests that the Secondary Agents Act must itself be morally good or at least indifferent. All right. Well, that seems obvious because if it weren't, that would just be a bad action in itself. The secondary agent must not intend the principal agent's evil act. Their intentions must be distinct. I'm just trying to do my job, build a career. These people want to do something else. They're using me for that end. It's really three and four that probably are the most, that require the most kind of analysis. The good effect is not achieved by the bad effect. Right? Is the secondary agent's action immediate or immediate? How close is it? Is it proximate or remote? And the good effect is proportionate to the bad effect. In other words, the outcome, the person's cooperation, the outcome generated by that cooperation is justifiable under the circumstances in relation to their own role in the activity. All right, now you can see here, you can see here in the fourth point, the question of proportionality mentioned by St. Thomas in his treatment of self-defense surface here once again. Right? This fourth element is asking you to consider 
whether the good to be achieved is proportionate to the evil effect that your participation generates. Right, now, I think balancing here is what is in order. This element is not asking you to weigh the principal agent's act and its effect against your own. The double effect of your action, I think, here is what is relevant. In other words, consider your amount of contribution. Balance that against the good you hope to achieve by continuing. And how do they compare against one another? Is the good effect you're seeking proportionate? Does it, is it weightier than the evil outcome? So consider, consider a person with a felony conviction. There might not be many jobs available aside from serving as a janitor at an abortion site. To what degree is that janitor participating in the industry of abortion? Or for an inventory stalker at Target, items that might be relevant include the desperate conditions of the worker. Right? Is this one of the few jobs that provides a schedule or insurance that'll allow someone to spend time with their children or enable them, enabling them to provide personal health care. Right? That would be a reason that might militate in favor of continuing to do the work, maybe. Right? The Uber driver, well, I don't know. If the driving is merely for supplemental income, perhaps the driver should refuse to complete the ride or render assistance once he or she is aware of the goal. I'm aware of Uber and Lyft, Lyft drivers who have kicked people out of their cars once they've realized where they're going. It's happened before. Don't underestimate, don't underestimate the impact this can have on the client, right? That too has to be part of the equation. Taking a stand can have an impact. Now, I could go on and on with various scenarios, and we'll return to some that might even be more complicated, but I skipped over, I skipped over the first three of these elements. One and two are obvious, right? The act must be itself unobjectionable. That hardly needs stating, because if it were, the act would be a sin itself, and the question of cooperation would merely be superfluous. Right? Now, number two is a factor that divides material cooperation from formal cooperation. And again, I note that it's not the intention that is determinative. It just deepens the analysis. It makes acceptable moral cooperation possible. It does render reluctant, half-hearted, or even protested cooperation, cooperation done under protest, at least potentially acceptable. But intention is not a litmus test that some would make it out to be. Intention is not the litmus test that some would make it out to be. But I think it's the third factor that is probably most interesting. The good effect must not be achieved by the bad effect. Now here what St. Alphonsus suggests we ask are questions about immediacy and proximity. In other words, how closely associated or necessary is the cooperator's activity to the secondary agent's goal? Now, immediate cooperation. Immediate cooperation in a moral activity, regardless of the intention, is always wrong. In other words, if the cooperator's participation is necessary for execution of the wrongful act, well, the lack of intent or variance in intention cannot render that act acceptable. Even a good intention won't rescue the action. This idea is biblically based. St. Paul makes it clear. St. Paul makes it clear in Romans 3.8. I, I probably should have put the quote up on the screen. But St. Paul makes it clear in Romans 3.8 that it is never permissible to commit evil for the sake of a good. So reluctantly, lending money to someone to travel to have an abortion for the sake of friendship or desperation or competitive employment, even if it's personally opposed, 
is immediate cooperation in the act of abortion. What you want to consider here is whether the cooperation is something like a necessary ingredient for the consummation of the act. This is what makes, well, this is what I think makes some of these workplace policies so troubling. Or consider, I don't know, consider maybe something a little closer to New York. Some of you probably know the name Michael Milken. All right, Michael Milken, Michael Milken was a famous investment banker at a firm that no longer exists, Drexel Burnham Lambert, right? More successful than Goldman Sachs, at least at the time in the early 80s. Now there's a whole story here, and there are many books written about, about the role that Michael Milken played in financing risky endeavors through institutional finance, right? He's the guy who was credited with creating the junk bond, right? KKR, right? Kravis is, Henry Kravis is actually responsible for having said that he hated dealing with Michael Milken. He found him difficult to deal with. But he was the only person on earth who could actually get him $4 billion in junk debt finance to launch a takeover of RJR Nabisco. Now imagine if Milken or somebody like Milken, a modern day Milken like today, I don't want to use anybody's real name, is the only person who can get you the kind of money that you need for a chemical like napalm. Now they might not have anything to do with how it's used, but they don't even care how it's used. They might not even know all the details of how it's made. But if they're necessary, even though they're far removed from how it will be deployed, if they're necessary for raising the capital to do these sorts of things, if they're practically speaking necessary for the project's success, well, then it's, even if their intention is not united, it's hard to argue that somebody like that is not immediately united to its ultimate goal. All right? If it's necessary for its success, that cooperation, even when you lack the intention and reject it, is too immediate. Right now, immediate cooperation. Immediate cooperation possesses greater distance from the immoral act itself, and it admits, it admits of a range. Now to be immediate, to be immediate doesn't mean it's okay. What we need to examine is whether the action is proximate or remote. Right now here, anyone who went to law school and remembers their torts class and the question of causation and negligence would be familiar with the significance of those terms. Proximate, immediate cooperation is an act that is subservient and wholly separate from the principal actor's work. In other words, it's not a necessary ingredient to the wrongful act. It's like icing, right? Unlike flour, it might be something like icing. But it's still nonetheless what makes a cake possible. It's something else without the icing. Consider a wholesale purchaser who buys textile items, textile items from parts of China known to engage in forced labor, Rohingya Muslim areas. Now they're not giving to the producer for the sake of pursuing forced labor, but the creation of the market, the creation of the market is what makes the forced labor scheme possible and remunerative, what makes that muffin, a cake. Now note here that there is a clear distinction between the money advanced for abortion. Buying textiles to make clothing, well, you're not advancing money to terminate a pregnancy, but in buying textiles, you're making a market that enables the wrongful conduct to continue in its present form. Only this last category only this last category can move you to a whiter shade of gray and possibly with some effort take you under the limbo stick. Right? This is immediate, remote cooperation. Now here, here I think the question I raised above about the janitor or the worker at Target and the Uber driver becomes, well, becomes consequential. For immediate remote cooperation to be acceptable, 
There must be some good, better, proportionate reasons for continuing to participate rather than withdrawing. The costs of withdrawal are too high relative to the limited role of the secondary agent. The janitor or target worker's paycheck might be crucial to the well-being of a child. Their role in the activity that they're part of is minimal and ultimately not consequential for its execution. And I think that's important. Is it consequential? Consider the marketer for the Dodgers. Now, I'm willing to bet there's probably somebody like this. There's probably some Christian working in the Dodgers office or somewhere in Major League Baseball, asked to distribute social media, promoting tonight's honoring of the Sisters of Perpetual Annulment this evening. While people of that individual's own church might well be out that state, might well be outside that stadium protesting. Now, if you're a new college grad who wanted your lifelong dream is to work in Major League Baseball, and you're asked to distribute this, are you in formal or material cooperation? Now, if you're asked to hit a button, that's one thing. What if you're asked to design it? What if you're told by leadership to come up with a design to make the images? Someone else will hit the button. Are you close enough then? Now, you can come up with all sorts of parallels, and I'm purposely avoiding ones that I think most of you are likely to be a part of. But you can think to yourself that own parallel how that own parallel applies in your own career. All right, so if you hit a, a general hypothetical that might hit a little closer to home, imagine being a junior analyst. There are hundreds and thousands of these people throughout the city. A junior analyst asked to prepare materials for a roadshow. Right, anybody involved in investment banking knows that a roadshow they're done much differently in the age of Zoom, but this is where you go out to institutional investors to support the primary market of your capital, all right? Now maybe, maybe the company you're raising capital for is in the biotechnology space or pharmaceuticals, and at least part of its product mix is developing and distributing products antithetical to your own sense of Catholic morality. Well, if you're asked to work on a transaction like that, how do you respond? Now, you're helping them pursue somewhere down the line that you're removed from, somewhere down the line that you're removed from. You're helping them raise the capital to make this possible. How do you respond to that? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One might be to try to avoid the conflict altogether, all right? There's no shame in this option. Ask for another transaction. You don't have to say why. You don't have to say why you want another transaction, but you can ask to be part of something else. Right now, if you cannot do that easily, you might go to your supervisor and tell him or her that you have some principal objections to this client and its activities and ask for a substitute. I came close to this once. I'm grateful I didn't have to do it. Right? Because why? There's a lot of risks here. For one thing, you jeopardize your own future. You jeopardize your own future in the organization. You have just communicated unwillingness to do something that will make money for the partners in the firm. That will mark you. People will remember that. Right? Another risk you run here is somebody else is still going to do that deal. That might be one of your friends, and that deal might be a painful one that will cost several weekends and evenings, round the clocks, 48 hours in an office. And when they're working at 3 a.m. for the second day, they will remember that you are the one that put them there. All those things are at risk. And what if your supervisor refuses anyway? All right, what if he refuses because you're just too busy? I mean, that's how they want to be. Everyone maximizing his or her time. But what if you decide that it's just too unrealistic for a host of reasons? Some of them you might not even be able to articulate just too unrealistic to even have that conversation. Can you continue to work with this transaction? And what happens when you do? Where do you think you are on this board? Well, I think there are some good reasons 
there are some good reasons for concluding that your participation, at least at a junior level, at least at a junior level, can qualify as immediate, remote, moral cooperation. But you are bending here, and I think this changes when you move beyond the junior level to the point at which you are deciding whether you are the one who makes the pitch for the transaction to begin with. And that is a wholly different question. But if you bend here, you are putting yourself on a path where that decision becomes much more consequential later. But even for the junior figure, I don't think that this is the end of the story. And I want to conclude with just a couple of words of advice for those who take their turn at immediate remote material cooperation. Be mindful of scandal. Your indulgence, even remotely, in immoral conduct makes it easier for others to follow suit and may even form the foundation for mentally excusing all sorts of activity. Now, scandal is, I've used St. Thomas's definition, it's a domestic institute event. Scandal for St. Thomas is something less rightly done or said that occasions another's spiritual downfall. You can imagine this. This is a particular burden for people of faith. Well, if so-and-so was able to do this, and I know they go to church, well, then it must be okay for me. This can be especially, this can be especially present if your religious identification is known. You unintentionally, maybe even unwittingly, generate reasons or break down resistance in others when you cooperate in evil. Even immediate, remote cooperation participates in a generalized acceptance of immorality. It builds up a societal norm. Think of the blue laws. I don't know how many of you know what the blue laws are. I worked in Congress. The congressman I worked for was once asked, I was there to hear him respond to this. Someone asked him, what laws, what laws could Congress pass that would do the most good in this country? He sidestepped that answer by saying, I don't think Congress has anything to do with those laws. I actually think it's state legislatures. And the worst thing we've done legislatively in this country was in various states repeal the blue laws. Now the blue laws are not the blue sky laws for some of you that know securities laws. The blue laws which what were is what kept commerce to a minimum on Sunday. You needed a license to run your business on Sunday. Now the idea wasn't that you'd be forced to go to church. The idea was that there was one day out of the week where people stopped and recognized that they were more than producers and consumers in an economy. Now the blue laws repealed slowly. First we relaxed them during Christmas so that people can get their Christmas shopping in. And maybe that wasn't so bad, and we expanded elsewhere. And now it's totally meaningless. And I'm not even sure how many of you even knew what the blue laws were when I said them. It's hard to imagine that we would ever get them back. We didn't repeal them all at once. That happened slowly, with one state doing it on a trial basis, and then others doing it, and others doing it, and now it's completely gone. I think material, remote material cooperation has something of that same effect. Right, and then finally, I want to remark on subtle ways that cooperation, even remote, even immediate remote cooperation, may work on us internally. And we can't get into this, but, you know, St. Thomas has this idea of something he calls habitus. And I put the definition here on the board. It's like a disposition. You want to think of habitus as something like practice. You have a hobby or anyone who's played a sport, the more you do of it, the more likely you are to get good at it. Now, St. Thomas recognizes this thing, same thing applies to moral action. The more often you lie, the easier it gets to tell lies in the future. The more often you tell the future, or the more often you tell the truth, well, the more natural telling the truth becomes. It just becomes automatic. You're disposed to act in certain ways. And remote, immediate cooperation can't help 
can't help but shape our dispositions. It can't help but save that dispositions. So for that reason, and this is a piece of advice that I will leave with you. If you decide that you must engage in remote, immediate cooperation, I think you should adopt some sort of action designed to work against its familiarization. In other words, because that decision to cooperate is exercising you for continued cooperation, you've got to undo that effect in some fashion. It's like being on a diet. You know, if you choose a relaxation, well, then you have to do something to reverse its effect, right? Think of remote, immediate cooperation as something like a relaxation from a spiritual diet. You just ate something you told yourself you would not consume. Now, to work it off, so to speak, you need to add an extra 10 minutes or something to the treadmill, all right? Well, you need some spiritual parallel. This could take the form of prayer, like a rosary for the people who are impacted by those actions, or charity related to the harm that you have cooperated, or so forth. All right? The danger as I see it, the danger as I see it, is that if you're going to bend over, well, if you're going to bend over, well, you might do it too many times that, well, you're unable to stand erect. Right? Your soul might lose the capacity to stand up straight. Walk around, walk around the stick when you can and exercise your soul's back when you cannot. All right, any questions? Yes. Uh, so just today I was asked, not asked, but I was uh, told like the next quarter we're gonna do this and it's one of those things where it involves, it's not like, like you said, like a chain where it's like, I do this, which enables this, which enables this. It's like, I do this, which enables this, which gives people the option of choosing one, this, this, or this. And then, so is that still, because it involves choice, like it's, it's like, let, to be simple, it's a tool that enables diversity related initiatives and like some of those things it's like about race and, and minorities so there but then some one of those things is LGBTQ right. stuff so does does I guess I'm wondering like how does that the fact that people there's choice involved there like there's all these different avenues that it can take like well let me try to use a couple examples I'll just repeat the question all right, so the question is, um, this gentleman asked, he's asked to participate in something today that comes up at work that he knows will unfold a series of options, some of which are good, um, some of which are not so good. And you're not going to be able to dictate the choice over which of those options are pursued, but you're going to enable the choice to be made, right? right? Is that fair? Or at least you're participating in enabling the choice to be made. All right, now remember what I said earlier, all right? None of us can avoid sort of breathing in gray air. I don't, I don't even, for, even in my own case, especially as, a, especially as a college professor and administrator, it's impossible for me as a religious, someone who has stopped practicing capital markets law, at this point I'm, I don't know, 15 years or so removed from that life. Right? Even here, I can't avoid it. So none of us can avoid it if I can. If none of us can avoid it, you certainly can't avoid it. All right. Let me try to use an analogy to place where I think you are in the decision-making process. Right. There are supervening causes that will impact the ultimate destination of whatever it is you're unveiling. Right. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but imagine going for a run. All right, you're going for a run, you're outside, you're jogging. Someone text messages you, you look at your arm or you look at your Apple Watch to see what the message is. Either way, you're not paying attention. Ahead of you is an elderly lady who's walking along, maybe on a walker, maybe slowly. Maybe she's got a problem with her neck and she's looking down at the ground and doesn't see you coming. Neither one of you see one another. You run into her. 
You knock her down. Maybe she breaks her hip. All right, you call an ambulance. You call 911. She can't get up. You don't want to help her get up because you're concerned you might make it worse. All right, and you wait for the ambulance to arrive. You're responsible for breaking her hip. Right? You look down to check a message. You probably, should have, you probably should have avoided that. Right? This is what I mean about instinct and disposition and the way that you kind of practice yourself to react. I do that too. I do that. I know this is on. I do that even when I'm driving, when there's a dashboard or something that'll come up. I know I'm not supposed to do that. I can't help but do it. At this point, I can't help but do it, at least not with serious intentional action, distracting intentional action. Ambulance arrives, right? Now, you, you own this accident. Woman gets in the ambulance. She drives to the hospital. Someone runs a red light and T-bones her, right? T-bones the ambulance. Now she has neck problems on top of hip problems. Are you responsible for the neck problems? Probably not, right? There's a supervening cause there. Now, you put her in the ambulance, right? She would have all, she's only in that ambulance, because of the decision that you made, right? That decision had immediate relationship, close relationship, proximate relationship to what happened to her head, all right? But there's a supervening cause, someone else's decision to drive recklessly through the red light. Now, you know by putting her in an ambulance that an accident is possible. I don't know how many ambulances get in accidents. I'm fairly certain the number is zero. Right? Because there's a lot of them on the highway. I've never seen one, but I'm fairly certain the number is zero. You know by calling the ambulance and putting her in there just because what you know about vehicles that accidents can't take place. You don't know what's going to happen to that ambulance, and somebody else's choice is what caused that accident. That might be where you are. Now, I don't know all the nuances, and that's, the, that's part of the problem with this analysis, is that not capable in a forum like this to really break this down. And even when you do, you might not be right, right? That's part of the problem. But does that help at all in situating the kind of choices that at least someone in your place might be made? What I want you to see here is that there's a supervening cause. You know you're creating choices. You're not the one who acts in favor of the supervening agent. Go ahead. You guess what? I mean, we can move to the next question. Okay. Go ahead. But in this complex equation, can you talk about when is just venial sin versus mortal sin? Because then it becomes, you know, calculating the magnitude is even more complicated within here. Yeah, okay. So the question is um, differences between venial and moral sin and their relevance. All right. So certainly um, acting deliberately for grave harm. All right, is, is a moral sin, all right? Excuse me, is, is, a, um, is a mortal sin. Um, I think what's relevant to this talk between venial and mortal sin is the proportionality, right? All right, so it seems to me that if, you're, if your good effect is proportionate to your cooperation with a venial sin, the principal actor's venial sin, well, then that would seem to justify, would seem to weigh in favor of your continuing with the activity, right? Seems to be. But if it's a sin of your own occasion, if the sin is yours yourself, well, then you're not really talking about cooperation. Because remember point number one here, your action itself has to be good or at least indifferent, right? And if you're a venial sin, well, you're hardly good or indifferent. Does that help? Gentleman behind, blue shirt, yep. Yes, I have a question about, uh, at one point you talked about necessity, I think it was when talking about whether your action is immediate or immediate. <clears throat> and you brought up, for example, the example of Milken, right? Yeah. Uh, him being the only person that can raise that money. So that's one of the problems with being successful, is that once you're successful, you are more likely to come into these situations. You have greater responsibility from being successful. Yes, but I guess for me, the difficulty is, um, why does he's being the only person, for example, make it relevant? Make, he's relevant. Well, make, okay, so the question is, in my hypothetical, why does Michael Milken's engagement, why is it relevant here if he's so far removed? All he's doing is helping a company raise money. No, no, no. He, like, the fact that he's the only person that can raise that money. Why? 
The fact that he's the only person who can raise that money is relevant because without his doing it, practically speaking, it might not happen. All right, because he's the only one who's capable of opening up the gates. Does that make sense? So if you're someone, if you're someone for whom, practically speaking, it is necessary for you to cooperate, you're capable of actually preventing this from happening. Maybe a, maybe a more realistic example or one that might touch more people than Milkins, although I think Milkins is realistic, just rare, is a nurse in a hospital that might provide abortions but doesn't normally do it, and maybe the nurse is the only one working. And maybe, and this has happened to people, they would prefer not, they're opposed, morally opposed to abortion, but because of staffing reasons, they're the only nurse on call. And they're moved to another wing of the hospital. Now at that point, it's necessary for their cooperation in this abortion. If you're the only nurse on call, and you're asked to perform it, what do you do if you're told that if you don't do this, you'll be fired? This has happened to people. There are lawsuits over this. Now, at that point in that scenario, that nurse's participation is immediate. Because in, in that situation, it would not occur otherwise. Go ahead. But then if there were other nurses, then are you saying it's graver than if there were other nurses that could have performed the No, I mean, I think if there's other nurses, there's ways to sidestep it by saying, listen, I'm opposed to this. I can't do this. All right, I'm opposed, you'll have to, and then they just move on and find somebody else. In fact, most hospitals will ask, my understanding is most hospitals ask healthcare professionals whether they have any moral objections to certain procedures they inform at the hospital and to state them so that they know that ahead of time. But it has occurred that even when they've stated this, I know of one incident in Boston, because of staffing reasons, this nurse was the only one available, even though she had stated the objection before. This person actually quit her job, all right? But to continue, to continue to help is too close. It's immediate to the execution of the act, even if you're opposed to the intention. One more, One more in the back, yes. Um, you, yeah. Could you speak a little bit or give guidelines on like, the role of acknowledging Okay, so the question was um, willful ignorance. What role does purposefully, purposely making sure you're uninformed? So, you, this is where I get back to my um, earlier scenario about suspicions. You might not know, but you also don't want to know. What degree of culpability do you have? St. Thomas would suggest some. All right, so ignorance can reduce responsibility for moral acts. Right now, if you know nothing, if, you're, if your ignorance is unintentional, well, you can hardly be held responsible for something you know nothing about. If it's what's called concomitant ignorance, where even though you didn't know about it, it's irrelevant because you wanted, to happen, you wanted it to happen anyway, your ignorance won't rescue you. The more difficult question is consequential ignorance where you purposefully choose, in the moment, not to know everything, all right? St. Thomas would suggest that can reduce the moral weight of the action, but not release you from it entirely, all right? So someone making that decision, and if you've ever had to make them, I think I have, you feel like you're rushed even though you're not, all right? Because you want that time period to pass quickly. So you're making a decision under circumstances that are less than entirely thoughtful. That can minimize moral culpability, can, right? I think it depends on your knowledge of your own impact in shaping your ignorance, if that makes any sense, all right? So I think I can dilute responsibility, but not, not release you from it entirely. All right. So. Father Boniface, you're going to let me take one more? 30 seconds. Go ahead. Uh, do you think there's any difference between the non-profit world and the profit-making capitalistic world? And the reason I ask, I was very involved in non-profits, and the goal was always to help people, to strengthen people's lives. And 
private sector, the goal is to make money, regardless of the effect on people. So if you want to avoid these situations, is it better to stay away from the profit-making world and, 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 and gravitate towards uh, organizations which help you? All right, so the question was whether it's safer to remain in, or it's safer to pursue a career in a nonprofit world rather than a for-profit world to avoid um, some of this entanglement. Did I get that right? All right, well, short answer is it depends, all right? I think it, I think it really depends on what you mean by nonprofits, all right? There are a lot of hospitals that are still in the nonprofit space. I think they can expose you to all sorts of morally compromising activities. Uh, the intention of the institution, I'm not sure is all that relevant, because I think, there are, I think there are many people, I think I know some of them, who are involved in the nonprofit world for the sake of pursuing their own career. They're probably giving up money, right, but they're still seeking self-remunerative goals in forms other than financial. Well, that's not, that's not going to sanitize the activity. All right, that's all we have. Uh, I think we have... Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.